song, uh, Amazing Grace, is, is probably the, the most famous hymn in, in history, uh, one of the most uh, well-known songs in the world today, uh, and often seen in a positive light, both by those who believe and those who don't believe, uh, even though it has some uh, fairly disparaging uh, lines about our condition. Uh, just think about how it opens. Uh, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I mean, it's quite strange that it's such a beloved hymn, a song that seems to acknowledge that we are wretched, uh, that we are lost, uh, that we are spiritually blind. Typically, those are the things that we don't want to, 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 to see about ourselves. We don't want to see ourselves in such a negative light. But those lyrics landed home for John Newton, who composed the song, uh, in the 1700s. You see, when he was a young man, and many of you know the story, John Newton uh, not only served on, but even captain a number of slave ships. So that meant that he advanced that evil, brutal enterprise that spat on the dignity of human beings made in the image of God. He had a hand in it all. And years later, when he was older, after, he, uh, after his conversion to Christianity, he looked back and, and, and he felt disgust and he thought, how could I be so blind? And he, and he wrote a song like this because he, he thought that the only way that he, as a, as a wicked man, could have a right standing before a righteous God is if, is, is if that God was an amazingly gracious towards him, a wretch, one who was lost, one who was blind. And today, I want us to consider that condition, the condition known as spiritual blindness, because the Bible has a lot to say about sight and blindness. You go through its pages, you see it's steeped in language of light and darkness, of having spiritual eyes to be able to see spiritual things so that we're not left in the dark when it comes to, thing, comes to things like heaven and hell, uh, life and death, sin and morality. It's all over. Uh, the place in both the Old and the New Testament. For instance, in, you see Moses uh, rebuking the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy for not being spiritually perceptive. He said that they, they didn't have hearts to understand, eyes to see, or ears to, to hear what God was saying. And in the New Testament, Paul uh, discusses people who want nothing to do with the gospel at all. And listen to the language he uses. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, that's the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Spiritual blindness. It means to reject the truth, reject the truth of Scripture, to reject the authority of Christ, to close your eyes in a spiritual sense to what matters most and who matters most. And so today we're continuing on in our series through the Gospel of John, and today we encounter a passage of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And see, John, the, the Gospel writer, he, he wrote with a purpose. He wrote so that we might believe. He, and he selects stories that clearly present who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do so that we might see Jesus for who he is, that we might believe in him. And so in the course of telling the story of Jesus, he recounts this actual encounter that Jesus had with an, an unnamed blind man as a way to talk about something even bigger that Jesus uh, came to teach regarding spiritual sight. And so 
We left off last week at the end of chapter 8. If you recall, it was during what was called the, 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 the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booth, uh, which was one of the three big feasts that happened in Jerusalem, these feasts where people would come to Jerusalem from all around and the population of Jerusalem would swell to great numbers. And in fact, uh, chapter 7 through 10, we're, we're going to be in nine, chapter 9 today, but chapter 7 through 10 all take place during this particular Jewish feast. And the reason it was called the Feast of Booths is, is that when Jesus, or when the Jews fled from captivity in, in Egypt, if you go way back to the book of Exodus, they wandered around the desert for 40 years and they built these little huts, these little shelters, these little booths, if you like. To, to protect themselves from the elements. And so it's called the Feast of Booths because every year afterwards, they would have this huge celebration to thank God for having provided for them and praying for his provision to continue. And if you know the story, there was a, there was a, there was a pillar of fire by night that guided them. And, and there was food that rained down out of the sky every single day for them to eat. And so they would literally, during the Feast of, of Booths, reenact some of, the, some of the, the time that their ancestors had been in the desert. And they would have these little huts across Jerusalem to stay in over the course of the feast. The other symbols of the Feast of Booths were light and water. Uh, during the Feast of Booths, every year they had these four gigantic, I mean gigantic, like 75 foot high giant candelabras that they would fill with oil and they would light these candles and light up the whole temple area every night for seven nights as a way of, of remembering and thanking God for having guided them by light in the darkness. And then they would perform a, a water drawing ceremony. The high priest would have two pictures and pictures and, and he, would, he would take one and he, he would fill it with wine and the other he would every night under the light of these giant huge candelabras he would walk down to the southeast corner of the temple and everyone would kind of process and parade with him. And he would walk down to a spot called the Pool of Siloam. And, and at the Pool of Siloam, it was a sacred place for the Jews. Uh, it gathered the water from this underground spring that was there. And they called it living water, and it was a symbol of God's provision. And, and so he would go down with this pitcher, and he would dip it in the pool. And then he would walk back up to the temple, and, and, and he'd have one wine He'd have the wine in one pitcher and, and water in the other pitcher, and he'd pour out the two of them together in the basin as a way of saying, God, you have provided for us in the past. Will you please continue to provide for us? And the people would be just, they would go into wild celebration. I mean, I mean, there would be harps and lyres playing. There would be cymbals crashing and trumpets blaring. And old men would be dancing and people shouting and celebrating. It was a huge, huge deal. In fact, it was said that, quote, he that has never seen the joy of the ceremony of the water drawing has never seen joy in his life. It was, a, it was that big of a celebration. God, please provide for us. Please help us. Thank you for having done so in the past. Please continue to do so. And what we've seen in chapters 7 and 8 in John is that Jesus crashes this party. He shows up and he starts teaching and healing right in the middle of this feast. And controversy sur surrounds and follows him all along the way. In fact, in John 7, after seven full days of this ceremonial water drawing, 
that they did each night. On the eighth day, it says in chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, Jesus is saying, everything you've been praying for, everything you've been hoping for in this water, I am that provision. And some believed in him, and some wanted to kill him. But everyone was considering him. And then in John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, these big lamps that you have lit in in hope and in thankfulness, the fire that guided you in the wilderness, that was me. I am the light of the world. And again, some believed in him and some wanted to kill him, but everyone was considering him. And you might remember, even remember from last week, at the end of, of, of chapter 8, uh, the last two verses, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He boldly uses the very name God used to describe himself way back in Exodus. He was saying, look, everything that you're celebrating here, everything that you're thankful for, everything you're hoping for, I am. And some believed in him. And as we see at the end of chapter 8, some picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him. But everyone was considering him. So there's all this commotion, and it says that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And the story then continues in in chapter 9 and verse 1. And we don't know if if this was 15 minutes later. We don't know if it was an hour later. We don't know if it was the next day. But a short time afterward, John... 9 verse 1 it says as he Jesus passed by he saw a man blind from birth now let's just think about blindness for a moment blindness is complete and utter darkness and it says that this man was blind from birth which means he did not know what the color orange even looked like he had never seen the sky He didn't know the smile on his mom's face. He couldn't even imagine it. I mean, even if we were all to, you know, close our eyes and and, and sit here in in darkness, as it were, for a few moments, we would still have the database of all these images in our mind because we've seen them. We can recall them. This man had no such database of images to recall. It was complete darkness his whole life. Now, they say that a person who suffers from blindness, their other senses become, you know, keener. They become sharper. And I wonder, as this guy was sitting there and begging up against the wall uh, of the temple, what he was hearing during the Feast of Booze that was different from the other ones that he had maybe been to. Maybe he heard Jesus cry out, come to me if you're thirsty. Maybe he heard him speak the words, I am the light of the world. Maybe he heard all of the, the commotion as they're, as they're threatening to throw rocks at him. And, and he was wondering what was going on as this movement, this bustle of people as, it, as, as they blow by. And, and he can't see Jesus, but Jesus sees him. Jesus sees somebody who was normally overlooked, the kind of person that most people don't normally see. People look past, but Jesus notices him. And he doesn't just notice him, he really sees him. And, it, and his disciples see Jesus, see him. And so they ask 
him a preemptive question in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Hey, who sinned to cause this this blindness? Was, Was it his fault? Or did his parents have some moral failure and a blind son was their punishment? You see, many Jews at this time operated under the myth that specific hardship was was caused by a specific sin. And so consequently, the the blind and the disabled weren't people who just had limited, were limited in some physical way, but they were people that carried with them a stigma of shame. I mean, it's almost like as if their belief system had some kind of, you know, karma involved with it, so that there was something bad that they, they were experiencing, something like this blindness. Well, it must have meant that, that this guy or his parents did something, and it was just coming back around on them, right? I mean, some people still do the same thing today. I mean, they, they think that misfortune necessarily means God's punishing them. So, so, you know, we, we turn on the, the TV and we see the hurricane hit, we see the tsunami hit, and we think, oh, God's giving them what they deserve. Or, or we drive through our city, we, we see someone holding a cardboard sign asking for help, and we think, oh, oh that person's lazy or immoral. They have, made, they have clearly made mistakes. But we, but we don't know their story. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, this idea that if I have, have a hard life, it must mean that God is, is against me, that I've done something to deserve it. This is the mistake, I mean, this is the mistake that Job's friends made, right? You know, calamity happens, they show up, and they're like, well, did you do this? Did you do that? He hadn't done any of those things. And so not only is the idea not true to the facts, because, I mean, think about it. There are a lot of people that are, you know, bad people that live good lives, right? And, and the reason they get ahead is because they walk all over other people, because they're, you know, they successfully use people, they cut corners, and they get away with it. I mean, if it was true, if this is how it worked, it would leave us either in a place of pride in ourselves if we're successful. Oh, God must love me. Look at how successful I am. I'm doing really well. Or it would leave us in a place of despair when hardship comes. We beat ourselves up. And so Jesus shrugs off their question because it has no place. And he says, it was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's not blind because of sin. It's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. Look, this young man, having been born blind, it's not about blame, it's about purpose. This is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I love how Jesus returns here to this familiar phrase. He says, as long as I am in the world, here it is the second time in two chapters, I am the light of the world. In other words, trust me, follow me. I will give clarity here. And he does, verse 6, having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. He picks up this disgusting pile of spitty dirt and he rubs it on the guy's face and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. And you read that and you're like, okay, what the, why, why in the world? Would Jesus spit in the dirt and apply this spitty mess like a balm or a salve 
to this guy's face. I mean, if you're God, just heal the guy. Why this extra step of weirdness? Well, I think there are a few things going on here, but I think one of the main things that's very clear is this has to do with the day of the week that it was. You see, I believe Jesus was challenging the Pharisees here. These religious leaders, these corrupt people who had distort, a distorted view of the way that God operated with people. And so let's just take a, a, a really quick Sabbath detour uh, because I think that it will make Jesus' actions seem a little less weird. Because Jewish life, you see, was, was governed by the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was a collection of 613 laws. Uh, of course, it had the top 10 list, the, the 10 commandments. And the fourth command was the Sabbath command. In Exodus, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. This was the day of the week in the Old Testament where the people of God were told to pump the brakes, to stop, to intentionally be unproductive because God is in control. It was, it was God's way of, of saying God provides that God does the work, quit the rat race. The command was for people. They had been slaves for 400 years. A day off wasn't something that they came by often, and God wanted them to stop for their own good and to remember Him. But the religious establishment of that day added extra rules uh, to the biblical commands. By the way, have you, have you ever seen religious people do that? You know, God says X, and they're like, yeah, why don't we throw Y and Z in as well? Because, because God needs my help. I'm uptight, and everybody else should be as well. And this fourth commandment, to it, they added 39 commands of their own to delineate what was and wasn't allowed. Things like you weren't supposed to carry an object from one place to another. You weren't supposed to knead dough or, or make bread. Uh, an, another thing you weren't supposed to do was make mud. That was work. And so Jesus, not only does he do a work of healing on the Sabbath, but he makes some mud in the process, and I think he's provoking them. He's getting increasingly aggressive with these corrupt religious leaders of his day. So he heals this guy, and it says the guy came back seeing. I mean, think about that moment. Just think about this guy with the, with the mud on his eyes, washing it, and just tearfully, my goodness. I wonder what that experience was like to him. I wonder what he thought about Jesus. Now, that's the end of the story, right? Everyone goes, oh, it's Jesus. Yes, absolutely. What other explanation could there be that he is the I am? I mean, this has got to be it, right? Well, no, actually, it's not the end of the story. We've covered just about 10 verses here, and there are 30 more verses in this chapter. And what happens next is one of the most hilarious and absurd interactions in the entire Bible. I mean, watch what happens. Uh, this is verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is. Others said, no, but, but, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they're like, I think it's the guy. No, I don't think it is. It, it looks like him, but I'm not sure if it's him. And the guy's like, it's me. It's me. He, keeps, he kept saying, I am the man. 
And so they said to him, and get used to this question because he gets asked this a lot, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, well, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And so there's this questioning, this speculation, this gossip, this this doubt. But here's the thing. They're all considering Jesus. This healing of the blind man has provoked them all to to step in and, and say, we need to investigate this. We need to know what happened here. Who is this guy? Where is this guy? And of course, the blind man was like, I don't even know what he looks like. I just heard him. Verse 13, it gets better. This is fantastic. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. I mean, great idea. They, 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 these were the ones who, who wanted to chuck rocks at Jesus. Maybe they'll be, they'll be able to figure this out, right? Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked Uh, again asked him how he had received his sight. Second time he's been asked. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, praise God, you're healed. No, it doesn't say that at all, does it? It says, some of the Pharisees said, this man, this Jesus, is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He broke our rules. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the man said, He is a prophet. The Pharisees are considering Jesus. They're far from convinced that he's trustworthy. The formerly blind man, he's convinced. He's like, Guys, seriously, I'm the guy. Was blind, now I see. We've gone over this already. Please just go find Jesus. He's the one who did this. The I am claims that he has been making, I think they're true. It gets even better here. This is a little bit longer, but it's pretty funny. These these Pharisees are now apoplectic and hell-bent on discrediting Jesus. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Okay, so let's get mom and dad in here, right? And they called the parents of him who had received his sight, and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. And we would remember if he was blind from birth. And I think this is him and that he was, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. And then John adds a a bit of commentary here. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, this I mean, this is like the witnesses are being, you know, coerced here. And his parents face an interesting choice. Do, do we back our son or do, we, or do we give in to this fear? Because to be put out of the synagogue was a big deal. It was a terrible thing. 
The most terrible thing that could happen to a Jewish person in that community. This would mean to being rejected from the center of Jewish life, from religious and social life. It's, it, it, it's like being excommunicated. It would mean people that, that uh, were, would be, were supposed to stay away from you, your friends, your family, your tribe. Gone. And so they're like, you know what? He, he's a big boy. Just talk with him. Ask him. Verse, verse 24 So for the second time, they called the man in who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. The man answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But the one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. You know what? I don't have it all figured out. I, I, I don't know everything about this guy. But the one thing I do know, as you're, as you're cornering me here, uh, I don't have the clever words, but I, know, I do know that I was blind, and now I see. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I'm sure he's like, will you please stop asking me this question? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are, uh, disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Clearly, this is an interrogation, and they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to stump him, but he's not going along with what they wanted. In fact, what you, you see here, he kind of turns the tables um, on them. You, you've got this ignorant, presumably uneducated blind beggar, the lowest of the low, taking on the big shots. And he turns the table and, and he says this to them, verse 30. The man answered, why, this is ama an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does God's will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He says, you guys admit that you don't know where he comes from, but yet here's a miracle plopped right in your lap. And you can't explain that. You see, no, no Jew would think that a sinful person is going to be able to do a, a miracle. The, the logic wasn't adding up. He's thinking clearly. He's thinking biblically. He's speaking boldly. You say he's a sinner. I think he's a prophet. He's done a miracle. He healed me personally. I know this experientially. So boldly he says to them, I see Jesus more clearly than you do. And he's rejected for it. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? You were born blind. You, have the, you are stigmatized as a, a wicked sinner, and you would teach us? Oh, you don't teach us. And they cast him out. See, what's happening here is this blind man, he becomes, first of all, a seen person but he also becomes a seeing person. But the guys who could see all along are actually walking in darkness in the spiritual sense. There's a, there's a passage in, in Matthew 13 where the disciples 
asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And, and he talks about the difference between having eyes to see but not seeing and the difference when you see and really see, you understand with your heart. And this blind man has both. But these religious people that are, are trying to figure this out, they're, they're actually walking in darkness. And you know, when we often think of, of um, uh, famous blind people, uh, the name Helen Keller often comes up. She's uh, one of the more famous blind people from, from history. And she became blind. She wasn't blind from birth. She became uh, blind due to an illness when she was very young, under, under two years or so. And so she has treme- tre- had tremendous insight into the idea of sight and blindness and light and darkness. And one of the things she said was, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Jesus helped this blind man to see, to, to really see, to have vision. Those questioning him, they, they could see, but they, they couldn't really see. They had sight but no vision because they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the light. And light is what enables us to see. So they walked in darkness. Now, now I love the way this story ends. Um, Jesus had heard uh, that they cast him out. Um, and having found him once, Jesus then goes back and finds him again. He was the, the one that no one cared about. He was the unimportant one. And then he's explicitly rejected. And Jesus goes after him again. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And I think he means that in both senses. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. So this man has his physical eyes opened by Jesus, and then Jesus comes back and opens the eyes of his soul so that he can truly see, and the man responds, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus says, see me, consider me, believe in me, trust me, Follow me. And I just want to close with this because there are potentially two groups of people here this morning. Some of you here might be spiritually blind. You've actually been living in and walking in darkness. And you need Jesus. And the challenge with spiritual, you see, the challenge with spiritual blindness is that it's so much more difficult to see and diagnose than spiritual blindness, or than physical blindness. I mean, if you're physically blind, you know it. I mean, there's no question about it. But when you are spiritually blind, we, we often don't realize it. Just like these Pharisees didn't see and understand that they were actually blind. And so the great danger is, is that we think we see when actually we are blind. So how then might we know? Well, as we see in the response of this blind man, his response is worship. You see, when Jesus cures spiritual blindness, the only proper response is worship. Because worship and sight go hand in hand. 
So, so do you want a diagnosis to know whether or not you, you are spiritually blind? The question is, do you worship Jesus? The mark of the true believer is that you worship exclusively and explicitly Jesus and that you see him for who he is. Uh, one commentary that I, I read this week said this, those who live in darkness are confused, unable to see reality, lost in a world of illusion. They make judgments based on mere appearances and are simply unable to grasp what is, imp what is important and true. Light, on the other hand, cuts through this darkness to unveil the right and the true. And Jesus is the cornerstone of the kingdom of light. And we begin to see when we acknowledge him as the eternal son of God. And so for some here this morning, the response for you this morning is to ask God to help you see and believe. Uh, Helen Keller said, faith is the strength by which a shattered world shall emerge into the light. It comes through faith in Jesus because he is the light. Do you believe in him that he lived a sinless life, that he went to a cross on behalf of your sins and mine, that he conquered death, rose from the dead, and is alive today, and that through him you can have a relationship with God the Father for all of eternity. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, it says that darkness came down upon the face of the earth. Jesus was plunged into spiritual darkness as the Father turned his face away. As he looked away and separated himself from his own son, Jesus was plunged into darkness. The perfect one, the one who saw perfectly, the one who was full of light, went into darkness. And he did that for you and for me, for poor, lost, wretched, blind people. And he did that to restore us. And when you begin to see that the way that God relates to us is, is amazing grace, when we see that, when our eyes are open to that, we begin to worship. So the call to some of you this morning is just that. Believe in Jesus. Trust him. Follow him. Worship him. And the second group of people here this morning are those of you for whom God has already opened your eyes to Jesus. And if that's you today, your response is one of continuing to see and believe and to give thanks. You see, John doesn't give us here in this chapter a, a list of to-dos. This isn't a, a practical passage. He simply shows us again the gospel he shows us who Jesus is. He shows us what Jesus came to do. And one of the chief ways that we respond is with gratitude and thankfulness in a life of worship. Not just singing songs, but, but, a, but a life of worship. And so it's, it's appropriate and fitting that we respond this morning by coming to this table, the Lord's table, which in, is also known in some Traditions as the Eucharist, the, the word early Christians used to describe communion, a, a word literally meaning thanksgiving. Uh, for, for the Lord's Supper is, 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 in the Eucharist, the church, for in it, the, the, the church receives the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and gives grateful thanks to God for such a blessing. And this thanksgiving is the only proper response. And, and so we come appropriately, appropriately this morning. Uh, to this table with thanksgiving. And lastly, might, I, 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 might we also be ready and willing to, to point others to Jesus as well? I mean, notice the change in this, this blind man. He went from fearful beggar to confident gospel witness all in the same day. 
I mean, five different times he said it was Jesus. Jesus did this. Go talk with Jesus. The explanation for the change in my life? Jesus. <coughs> he is who he said he was. And so I think it would be good for us also to ask God to help us to have eyes to see people as he does. Not just to look at them, not just to glance at them as we, as we pass by and go on our own way and do our own thing, but really to see people. Every person that we come across is a person that God has created in his image and for his own glory. And when we have eyes to see that and see people the way God sees them and enter into their lives the way that Jesus did here, we can then help people know the God who sees them so that they too can consider Jesus and believe in him. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you so much that when we were wretched, when we were lost, when we were blind, that, that you would come and that you would seek us out. That you would be yourself plunged into darkness that we might see. We thank you that when you found us in this condition that you didn't leave us as we were, but but that you would change us. So give us a humble hearts, we pray. Really open our eyes to see you as you are. And we pray today that we would respond with, with deep gratitude and, and genuine thanksgiving. And that we would resolve not only to know you, but to make you known. That, that we would long to have you seen by the world. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we do pray. Amen.